0: So let's, uh, let's begin. Let me show you this, this process right here first of all. And um, uh, this is uh, a way that the, the folks at Willow Creek did based on studies of their own church plus really literally thousands of other churches. And they articulated a process or a steps of uh, stages of a disciple. And in that disciple, the first step that you see there is, is the uh, exploring, uh, exploring Christianity steps. These are folks who are just trying to figure out what this is all about. They're curious. They're um, trying to um, consider who Christ is, what the claims of Christ are about. And um, so identifying them uh, in the life of our church and our ministries is is pretty important. So I need to, I don't know if I can, I feel like I need to be forwarding that, okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. And you'll see um, on the screen, there it is, there are some things right there that in the uh, disciple making process you see the questions or their statement is I believe in God but I'm I'm uh, not uh, sure about who Christ is that sort of thing the second one is the growing in Christ and these are folks who've made some preliminary uh, agreement to follow Christ and they followed him in some way and they're uh, trying to figure out what that means to become a Christ follower the third step is the uh, the close to Christ and these are folks who are Who are rearranging their world in us in a way and and committing to following after him and um, trying to pursue him and feel some level of intimacy and then the last one is the christ center these are folks who are totally sold out to christ and their whole world revolves around their relationship to him and uh, unfortunately uh, the process there are two critical two critical points in there one of them is after the growing in christ let me share One of the findings that came from their study is that after the people make a commitment, begin growing in Christ, there's often a, um, uh, they call it stalling. There's a time that people often uh, go into stall mode, and it's usually related to some personal um, addictions, habits, hang-ups, personal um, uh, emotional issues. And so we get to a point and we say, yeah, I'm going to follow after Jesus. And then we get into that, y'all know what I'm talking about, where you hit that wall kind of when you're following Christ. And the tendency is if we don't press through that and we don't get some help, we don't get uh, in the body of Christ, it will we will stall out. And, um, and we'll retreat back to some old behaviors. And so that's a critical point. And the second one is that most people who are in the church actually fit into the third category. That they've kind of made... They're, they feel kind of close to Christ, and they've made some some decisions to follow Him. But Jesus is not the center of their world. So then, let's look at what is those folks mean. In the second, the second as you go along this continuum, the next slide is going to show what do they need, uh, how do we need to minister them, and so the growing and exploring Christianity. These folks need a a vibrant and inviting worship service. They'll also uh, need some time of of uh exploration some kind of a class or com- conversations about who christ is and and a way to answer that the growing in christ need their small group experience some way that they're uh they're beginning to understand the word and the and the body of christ and uh developing some basic dis- spiritual disciplines and then as we've talked about in the stall mode one of the things that i'm really seeing in my life is in my uh experiences that we need uh, we need increasing number of support groups and uh, soul care type of ministries in our churches because our folks are bringing uh, those addictions and hurts and uh, emotional damage to the to their to the church and then we end up with a lot of folks who are who are not moving forward the third one i'm gonna try to move over i can see the third one is uh, the close to christ need serving opportunities and i'm gonna probably talk about this a little bit more But this is one of the things that I've really seen, particularly in my age group, that the most important small group for many of our folks is not their Bible study group, but it's their serve team. And that that the service opportunities have become their primary connection to the church. And so we're trying to figure out how do we move away from a small group Bible centric uh, sometime to how does my serve team not only serve in some meaningful way, but also become a discipling uh, area for us. And then the last one is with uh, the folks who, um, who are in the Christ Center. They need mentoring opportunities. Um, they, I've not found anyone who doesn't still need other people speaking in their life, no matter where you're at on your spiritual pilgrimage. And then also a wide range of uh, serving opportunities. And so service, you see, really becomes important on the second half of this continuum. So I wanted to kind of set that stage for us. And then uh, what I'm going to do is um, that has influenced me pretty significantly. And so what I'm going to do is uh, unpack some of that in terms of my model here on sustainable discipleship. Now I'm used to, I'm not used to too much of a lecture mode because I like interfacing. And normally in my classes I do lots of exercises and small groups and throwing things on the slide and getting feedback. And so we're going to have a little bit of that as we go through here tonight. But I want you to feel comfortable. Uh, you know this is a signal hey Dr. Stone I have a question go ahead and do that anytime that I'm going through here if you're uncertain about where we're at what I'm trying to communicate I'd be glad to do that so let me uh, go through this sustainable discipleship model uh, principles and practices and uh, I'm not saying that I have practiced discipleship perfectly in every situation I've been in I have been in a number of different situations so I'll share some of those but uh i'm probably like most people i learn more from my mistakes than my successes and so i've had plenty of mistakes in my life and things oh man i wish i'd have done i should have done that but i'll try to share some of those so let's start with some presupposition on this model that i would like to explore with you and how that fits into your disciple making process here perhaps here's a presupposition god desires for discipleship to occur anybody want to disagree with that What's the Carrie Commission says, say to us? Go and make disciples. All right? Now, you know what? I'm going to share. I hadn't planned on sharing this, but it just came to my mind. Uh, so I do that a lot. Here's an interesting thing the focus of much of our Bible teaching and disciple making uh, up until the last 30 years, the main thing we thought we would do was teach. And I was standing in First Baptist Church, uh, Panama City, a couple of years ago and i was looking on their wall and they had a a, had a the great commission on their wall and uh and it was in king james version and i don't know why but this is the first time that this had stuck out to me does anybody know what the great commission says in king james versus a more modern translation go therefore and teach all nations and do what perfect and he quoted king james version perfectly how is a new version the niv or nasb what does it say what's well, a different word go therefore and make disciples so there's a pretty big word difference from the king james that we used for a long time in our american churches and now that we're using some more modern language we have been reinterpreted to say go and make disciples thinking that I think the when the King James was written there was they was synonymous that if you taught that was making disciples and in some ways it is but we've seen that there's maybe a, some nuances and su- suggestions that it, so we've moved and I think in American culture many times along the way if I just teach then I made disciples is that that true I would suggest it's not I can look at America and we're not doing a very good job we've been teaching pretty hard for the last 30 years for the last fifty years, and we got fewer disciples proportionally than we've ever had in our country, so we have failed. If that was the if that was the way that we go about doing it, so that's a big change for us. So it's not just about. But we would say the Great Commission encourages is a expectation that we do make disciples. So another presupposition is this: true discipleship is not a, is a process and not a program. True discipleship is a process, not a program. We. Many of our my colleagues and people in the seminaries, we train people how to manage programs. And then we've hit walls. Yes, ma'am? Sorry. Right. Which, which translation is the closest to the original language? Well, I think the words that, that the, the, the words that are appropriate now, that's why it's been changed to make disciples. The word there is more closely and attuned to that word than teaching. And it depends on how you, what you explain teaching as. And they were, they were synonymous previously. I think we're seeing them as, as somewhat different now. So I think the more modern translations more accurately reflect the modern, I mean, the language, probably, because we found out things about the language, since, especially since the, late, since the 40s when the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and all kinds of other texts that have been uncovered. So the language is increasingly getting more clear, I think, for us. I, that's why I like New American Standard. I think right now that's probably one of the best, most modern translations. But um, anyway, that's beside the point. So a true disciples approach. Now, many of us in Baptist life, we, we relegated discipleship training to Sunday night at 5 o'clock or Wednesday evenings or some other times. And it's not a program. Disciples is a process, and it's a lifelong process that we're engaged in. Here's another one. No one model fits every culture generation. Um I've served churches that were small, like uh, 100 uh, people on Sunday morning, and uh, probably the the largest church I served was um, maybe the last one I had in Texas, and we had about 7,500 people in our data system. Now, that's not how many people were there every Sunday, but that's how many people we're trying to manage. That's like a small town, right? 7,500 people. And interestingly, that was one of the most interesting places because we had people from with 40 different countries and 30 different languages in our church and I really became aware of how the disciple how do you do disciple making in a multicultural environment uh, because I had folks come into my congregation who um, who could speak seven languages but they couldn't read or write one and you try to how do you communicate the gospel and help them grow in their personal faith in a, in a um, in, a, in a multilingual I remember sitting one day uh, we had a number of folks from Burundi and uh, I was sitting there one day the pastor and he t- said turn to Psalm 101 or something and this lady was kind of struggling with her Bible so I looked over and tried to help her and, and I figured out she must be Burundi and so we opened it up and I, c- I could find Psalm 101 because it's like in the middle of the Bible but I couldn't read anything else that was on her page but she, I don't think she could read much of it either when I was sitting there so I've, I've discovered that somehow we have to find ways to disciple people uh, regardless of their culture and, uh, and from generation to generation. You guys are seeing now that our generation, the baby boomers, is different than the Zers and the Xers. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is that um, our generation, my generation, baby boomers, 96% of us grew up with a religious tradition. It's down to about 15% for this latest generation that have a con- have any kind of context of, of what Christianity is about. So how we go about discipling them is quite different. Alright? So no one model fits every group. Number th- uh, The next one. Disciples should be, the pr- should be the priority of the church. We're going to, I think we should uh, w- we probably take that one for granted but i go into church after church after church and I look at their bulletin and I look at their scheduling and i look at their budgets and i look at their programs and their staffing and i don't see discipleship (coughs) weave through all of that it's kind of the thing they do on the end after everything else is done and so discipleship is vital and critical and should be uh, the priority for the church and lastly in the presupposition is discipleship is a supernatural spiritual activity um None of us can make discipleship happen. Discipleship is a work of God from start to finish. Um, i to give you one, uh, one verse that just uh, God just really spoke to me about because I, I always tried to guide people through things. And, and, and Philippians 1.6 just drove home to me one, one day. is He who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus and the the work of the of the spiritual formation of and and work it, it's it's something god's got to do we have a part in it and that's part of what we're going to talk about this part of this came home one day i was watching uh, i mean i was uh, barbecuing and i finished the meal and everything went inside and i had my grill cover i left it outside i know you guys never do that but i left i left it off the grill till it was cooling off and i said well, i'll come back and get that later well, I got busy. A couple of days goes by, two or three days goes by. And I walked out uh, to go get it, and I picked it up, and guess what was underneath? What would be underneath? I don't know. It was laid out in the grass. All the grass underneath it was yellow. In just three days, it was already dying. And I thought, and it was almost like the Holy Spirit just, just poked me and said, this is, this is what it is. I'm trying to grow people. And you keep putting grill covers on top. The church keeps putting grill covers on top of things. And it really spoke to them. Part of is not what we do to help. Because in South Louisiana, you know what I have to do grow grass? Nothing. <laughs> the rain's coming. The sunlight's coming. There's nothing I can do to, to make grass grow in our community and you know, around my house. I, in fact, i got to cut it. And the, and the more it rains and the more sunlight it gets, the more often I have to cut it. But it, it, I can do things that can keep it from growing, and once somebody is born into the kingdom of God and starts this new life, God—it's—it's it's really God's responsibility to form them. Everybody know what Romans eight twenty nine says? Everybody knows what eight twenty eight says, right? All things work together for you. what's eight twenty nine say? Huh? Who? We're, uh, we're, we're that uh, we are. We're, everything works to good for those who are called according to his purpose and 29 says what we are predestined to be conformed into the image of christ that's his destiny that's our destiny once we're in christ what's his goal for us i don't think that has to do with predestination and election i'm not going to get in that theology i'm i think it means once we're in christ his ultimate goal for us is to look like jesus so everything that happens to us as we go through this process is about forming us into that image into the Christ-like character, uh, and, and that so that as we're, we're forming, so this thing is we're not. Resp- I'm not responsible for your for your your spiritual development. Your pastors, I, they're they're responsible from keeping it from happening, right? Because God is what work in you. You're partly responsible. Now you partner with God, but their our job as staff and leaders is, and we'll come to that. That'd I mean, be the last thing is to create some environments that allow. The nat- the spiritual supernatural activity that happened okay so here's some uh, some variables to con- consider as we're thinking about our even you as you're thinking about my own lifelong discipleship uh, one is the spiritual maturity of individuals within the congregation how many of you think everybody's on the same level we're all at different places in our personal spiritual growth, that makes it a challenge for us, doesn't it? Just as we looked at those four stages a few minutes ago, where are you at on that continuum? Am I exploring Christ? Am I growing in Christ? Am I close to Christ? Am I Christ-centered? Where am I at in that? And we're all at different stages along that. And, and as leaders, we're trying to help move people along. And and you guys have. Uh, Pastor Don and I were talking a little bit this, this afternoon, maybe a 1,000 people that are under the regular influence of your church. Everybody's at a different stage. How do we know where people are and what the next thing that they need is? It's challenging for us, okay? Uh, here's the next one that I've really come to appreciate is biblical literacy. Some folks have, have uh, been in the church for a long time and they know stuff. They know the Bible. They've read the Bible. They, some folks read it every year. They know everything from Genesis to Revelation. Um, let me tell you what I'm saddened by. I was telling Mike this last night, I think. Or maybe it was at lunch today. Our, I have seminary students who come, and I'm using bi- basic Bible stories to make illustrations, and I can see the blank look on their face. Because many of our children and youth today are coming to our seminary and they feel a call from God to do something. They don't know what that is. Many of them come and they say, I want to be a children's pastor or youth pastor or college minister. Now, why would you think those would be the three most popular choices? Anybody want to guess? I'm asking you questions. You hadn't asked me any yet. That's all they've ever seen. Many of our young people today have come through children's ministries that were isolated from the larger church. They went through a youth that may have had its own programming, went off to college when got involved in a collegiate ministry or a big church that had a college ministry. And they many of them have never been an adult in church. They don't know what the pastor really does because he's the guy that talks on the stage that I see and I don't really don't know anymore. Or it might the Minister of Education or Discipleship. They don't have a clue because we're guys that's in the hallways. And they've never seen us, so they don't know that that's a potential calling. And so, the, and the same thing is true. They don't know what the staff does because they've never been involved in the workings of the church. Many of them have never sat through a church business meeting. And I go, I have meetings with them. I say, guys, you you're gonna you want to be the pastor and you've never been to a business meeting before? They could vote you vote you out and sell the church, and you wouldn't know what happened. <laughs> Cause they say why do i need robert's rules of order because <laughs> those guys in that church know it and they can do some business while you're in the paint while you don't know what you're doing and so that we get some folks that are naive but they're not only naive about those things they're just naive about the basic bible because many of them have not systematically read or studied the scripture and they've grown up in churches that didn't encourage that and didn't provide that for them growing up so uh, and I'm not saying that's an indictment. I'm saying that saddens me as, a, as an educator uh, trying to help guide our folks. Uh, I would also say, if you think about the literacy, it's not only biblical literacy. Sometimes it's just literacy, period. We're increasingly a culture that doesn't read. Uh, many of our young people today, they haven't touched, touched a book in a long time because they get all their information on the computer. Now that's not necessarily bad, but we just need to understand how people are processing information, and how what parts that they're keeping it. Our problem today is not too much uh, too little information. Our problem today is too much information that people don't know what to do, how to value it, and process it adequately. Um, Okay. Third, uh, third variable to consider is the quantity and quality of leadership. That's why uh, it's real important for us to. Uh, as we developing models and processes for guiding people through our congregations who, who who's in my who's in my church and who's prepared and how many leaders do i have and and uh, my my thinking is everybody ought to be leading something in fact i think everybody is leading something uh, even if it's not a formal position you at least leading your family you're leading your neighbors you're leading the, your co-workers you may be leading people at the congregation everybody's a leader the question is what are you leading for them how is it moving people along in their in the spiritual journey Um, the next one is is as you're thinking about a a model for discipleship is available meeting spaces and places Uh, i've i've seen over the years all different different situations Um, some churches have lots of meeting spaces and not enough people and so they can't use meeting spaces as a as an issue i see some the other way when you're out of space and they go we don't have any spaces i can tell you some stories but let me tell you a story about that but don knows where i was i was at a stream baptist church and it's a it was a pretty uh pretty significant church in baton rouge and uh i got there and they told me right away we already had we had uh let me think two two worship services or three i can't remember two services anyway we moved into a new building we were doing that and they, they said oh we're out of we're out of space and we need uh, we, so we got to do something different so I walked through the space and it doesn't matter what church I'm gonna do I can find some space but I found 12 rooms in the adult education space that because they had moved from kind of smaller groups to larger groups they had abandoned the small spaces and started meeting together in the large spaces across the hall that would hold like 30 40 people and the smaller groups that would hold, hold like 15 we're closed up and full of stuff and so the pastor asked me if you ever want to hear some stories about my pastor at that time his name was Forrest Pollock and he was an interesting character uh, have you ever told him some uh, some Forrest joke stories in here so ask Don sometime. he was in town at the time when this was going on but my pastor now he uh, sadly he was in a plane crash single plane crash a few years ago and died but uh, he was a character when I worked with him but his his first thing when I got there he said okay I want you to start 50 new Bible study groups this year that was my first assignment when I joined the staff there so we got about we started about making so they're like but we don't have any space so I start walking through and I found all these rooms and they were just they had become just collectible spaces y'all know those spaces that end up you know fall festivals over if everything is thrown in there or some other event and stuff. So, and so there's so I had 12 rooms all up and down that hall so what I did Every month I went in one, I cleaned it up, everything either went down the hall or out to the trash or given away or something, and I started a new group in that classroom every month for the next 12 months. Now, see, by, by doing that, we had multiple, so that means I actually ended up with 24 spaces by doing that. Now, the biggest thing was uh, the, the fight with the music guy. He wasn't really a fight, we were friends, Wayne Polk. And I told him, I said, Look, Wayne, for me to for me to build one of these spaces going to cost us about $50,000. If we were building a new building at that time it would be about 50 grand for a new Bible study space. I said, um, you can take all of he had about five of them full of Easter production stuff. I know y'all don't have any rooms like that here, but I I had one there and so we had like all the Easter production stuff all up and down there. So I said, look, for for 50 grand, I can take everything you have here go put it in a climate control unit for about the next 10 or 15 years. And so I negotiated with him on that and we took all of his stuff down to a climate control storage facility down the street. And I got all those spaces. So there's spaces everywhere, beside on the campus. There's spaces, people's houses. There's spaces in people's businesses. And if you have small groups, and we're gonna talk about those, and you have some real small groups, you can meet at Cracker Barrel, or you can meet at a, a restaurant or McDonald's. I see small groups every morning at McDonald's, some retired folks. They get together, and they're not talking about Jesus, but they're a small group that they're meeting around. <laughs> they, they've been meeting in that same spot for the last 10 years, and they're talking about a lot of stuff. So if we could just convert those to Jesus Bible studies, we'd be good, right? They're talking about everything else that's going on in the community and all the stuff they don't like most of the time, but all right there's there there's an infinite number of meeting and spaces it's just a question of how you use them for the gospel uh i'm gonna go ahead and quote one of my one of my guiding philosophies when i was at a stream i was really thinking through acts 542 it says day after day and then temple courts and from house to house they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that jesus is the christ they use the church building and they use the other buildings okay and they use their homes all right number the next one the culture of the church and community. Yeah, I've discovered every church and community has a culture. Um, am I picking up that you guys kind of like football and win? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, having the the high school football team on on the TV on Friday nights—that what that what I heard this morning. Um, every cult, every community, every church has a culture. Has an ebb and flow to it. Has a has a um a, a way that it goes about uh doing things and if you've ever been to south anybody ever been to south Louisiana in here uh cajun my wife is cajun on on her grandparent or both her grandparents neither of which could speak english until after world war ii and uh it's cormier and Chesson. those were those two names and so uh they were the cajun culture is different um it's good but it's different and uh and there in New Orleans, where we live, every almost every weekend of the month, if you go to the the city calendar, there is a festival of some kind. Uh, and there's very few weeks that there's not some kind of party in town. So if you don't like parties, don't go to New Orleans. Some of them you don't need to go to the parties. I can just guarantee you. But there's Jazz Fest, and I mean you name it. There's something every week. It's part of the culture of the of the city. And one of the largest churches in the in the city, the pastor. Uh, and I you know we talked and he goes I, I basically i got about two windows to do new to launch new things and really attract new people and that's the two weeks before school starts back and the saints start football and two weeks in january right after football season's over and before mardi gras gets in full force so they only have cuz after that you, the, the the calendar just gets cluttered with people doing all those other things so you have to understand your culture of your church and Whatever you're you guys are in a farming community here and agriculture, it has a culture and it's and it's got seasons that go with it. I know that. I'm not a farmer, but uh, I appreciate farmers and the hard work that they do, but I know how that goes. There's certain times you plant, certain you cultivate it, there's certain times you harvest and, and all that work. Now I'm from South Louisiana, so all those former rice farmers down there, they're lazy. I'm just gonna tell you, they don't like to work that hard, so they converted all their rice fields to crawfish fields because all you got to do is plant and harvest you don't have to do all that other stuff you just put them in there flood the waters and and then go pick up all the all the crawfish later that rice got to be too much work all right then you got receptivity of the community whenever we're doing our our ministry and we're trying to be ambassadors out there um man there's a there's people that are receptive and then some that are aren't aren't and Jesus Jesus recognized even in his own ministry and he said when you go to a city and you're going to communicate the gospel if you find people of peace right you 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 go invest you go plant the seed but if you don't find people that's receiving you what do you do shake the dust off your feet and keep going so you don't spend a lot of time now don't mean you start praying for them don't mean you don't try to cultivate but you can spend a lot of time beating your head against the wall. So you've you got to wait and let God do some work and we do some cultivating to make that more receptive uh, to, to what the, when people are ready, okay? Just for what are some other things maybe that you've seen that might impact the way we do discipleship and your own personal growth that would be a, a variable you might think we ought to consider? Anybody? Nope. Questions? Well, I'm gonna pause. I'm forward. Move to the next thing. All right. I think the next thing, next slide, might be my the design. There we go. All right. Now this is something that after I've looked at those presuppositions, those variables, and talking to lots of people and studying lots of books. I, you go to my office. I've got tons and tons of books on discipleship. I teach discipleship strategies and and uh, spiritual formation of the minister and we teach all this stuff and, and there, everybody's got a model out there everybody's got a design everybody there's a whole bunch of them and uh, what I've discovered is um, many of them work some of them don't uh, but overall they have some basic underlying principles so I try to say what do I see between a biblical record and some of these models that, that are principles that you can apply to whatever so let's begin with this one Uh, On the slide, you'll see uh, that maybe I need to change that to white, huh? Here's, this is a, I've kind of put these in in juxtapositions between each other, okay? So the first one on the left-hand side, you see uh, two ideas. One is uh, relationships and content. Now, let's just ask this question for a minute. How many of you think relationships are more important than content? Let's do a, a show of hands relationships are, are the most important element of disciple making ah be proud put those hands up there let me see Two, three, four. Oh, we got a few stragglers okay how many of you think content's more important the rest of you are not sure how many of you are not sure you don't want to take a position okay ah no no cheating all right now so here in this continuum, this is this is the ongoing debate. Often, when we come to disciple making, most models are either highly relational, or they're very content centric. And so, both of these two things, then you'll have people argue and debate, or whatever. They're on both sides of this model, and uh, that there are that that's important about how we nurture rela- uh, this relationships, and and that we can only invest in people as in a relational element. Uh, versus that we can communicate uh, truth, and it doesn't matter so as much about our, our uh, particular uh, relationship with those individuals. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you is that they are both important but at different times. And I'm going to show you as my model unfolds how they relate to each other. Okay, so the next part of my model is uh, two other continuums. I uh, hope that comes up. Oh, here we go. This my question content versus relationship. We asked that question, so we can keep going. All right, now at the top of the next one is experience versus education. Now I'm going to use education as uh, um, a formal teaching experience, okay? Formal teaching time. So, which one is more important that we engage people in experience? that we intentionally instruct people how many of you let's think for just a minute let's go for how many of you think experiences are more important okay about half the group how many of you think some formal education is more important those are the teachers in the group all right and the answer is both (laughs) all right let's go to the next slide for just a second so think I want you to think with me for just a minute what discipleship experiences were formative for you what discipleship experiences were formative for you Will somebody (laughs) (laughs) Uh uh-huh all right over in a relationship okay what was the nature of the relationship of that relationship that made it an experience Okay. So you this was a, you met with somebody on a regular basis or something? Sure. Or even just in even just in job career, I mean, being Okay. Or All right. So having uh, being uh, and I'm you're, you're getting a little ahead of my model here, but uh, ex- experiencing things with somebody experiencing things with someone with whom you have a relationship is important. Okay? Somebody give me another experience. Maybe something that Yes, ma'am. You have one? Okay. All right. So what kind of practice? Give me an example of a practice. That would be on the experience side. Okay. When, so when you have a crisis of faith or a temptation, then you respond to that. Okay. Okay. OK? So going through some experience and our temptation and learning how to uh, respond appropriately to that is, is important. OK? Somebody else. An experience. Yes, sir. Okay, your, your testimony, sharing it or hearing somebody else's? Okay? Good. So sharing. so sharing your testimony and, and actually hearing from somebody else is a good experience. You had one? Okay. All right, and you remember all of those lessons? No, but the, but the and the okay. All right. Okay. So going through some uh, some of that training with some and and experiencing that with some other girls, Bible school. <laughs> All right. Well, now you got to have an iPad with it with a download on it. <laughs> All right, Some, one or two more. An experience that was formative in your personal spiritual growth. Youth camp. Youth camp okay, those are always pretty big, aren't they? Those are uh, those are just, but those are just emotional experiences that don't do anything for us, aren't they? When you get on fire and you come home, that fire will go out, won't it? all right so going on a mission trip going to youth camp okay those are experiences that we have along our spiritual journey Um, nobody named anything bad think for just a few minutes when we go through a uh, uh, a crisis of some kind i'll tell a story my wife and i were in a car wreck when we were 28 my daughter was like two years old we were taking actually taking her to the doctor she'd been sick my wife took her out of the car seat, was having her hand. She was throwing up on us. We were—I was distracted. I was falling too close to another vehicle, and the one in front of me swerved, and there was a car sitting still. And bam! I hit that car. And my wife was grabbed my daughter, and she slid forward, and she actually hit her knee on the da- on the dash, and it pushed this right leg through her hip and fractured her femur and her hip socket. And so during that next. Um, that was probably the next uh, several months or some of the hardest times of our life because uh, she was in traction two weeks, she was in a body cast two months, she was in mobile another month after that, and she was on a crutch for about a year and a half after that. But that time was a time that really was a spiritually, um, it was a crucible for us about who we were, what God was doing in our lives, and there were some really good things that came out of that. There were some really bad things that came out of that. And um, and so, um, but that experience, as tragic as it was, was formative for our spiritual formation in discipleship and sense of call. Okay. Anybody else have a story like that real quick? And then we'll move on. My, my mother died at 45. I was twenty-three, And I learned more about God, uh, watching her die. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so uh watch I'm gonna say it so in case somebody's but watching your mother die was an experience that allowed you to see God in a in a new and fresh way. You see, we all have these experiences, and sometimes they're little and sometimes they're big, but we have them every day through our life and those experiences, okay, and then education, what does education mean education uh, at its root, there's a couple of uh Latin words edu. Care and edu, chara. It's got they're real close, but one of them basically means dispensing information, and the other one means to lead the next generation forward. Oh, there it is. I put it up there. Two Latin words about about education. One is to train or to mold, and the other one deals with leading. And so, education is is a twofold component. Not only are we just giving out information to the people that are in our care. in our charge but we're also preparing them to take on the reins of leadership and pass that along as we go forward so um, i'll be glad to share some of that going forward let's move on to the next one so so what do we do now so we've got these these two continuums that are going to form our two corners okay then the next thing that we look at is um uh go ahead uh, onto the side of relationships, there are two factors that shape and deepen our relationships. One is time, and one is proximity. Malcolm Gladwell said um, that these are the two most important things for sh- forming friendships: is time and proximity. He cited a study that there was a, a um, apartment complex of a very diverse group of people and they started looking at a measure of their relationships within that apartment complex and found that the people became friends with each other even they were very diverse backgrounds simply because they were living in the same building and encountered each other uh, back and forth over a long period of time they became friends so there's nothing that deepens our relationship with one another more than time and proximity now let's think about that for just a minute for what that means for disciple making for your church um, there's been a major sociological shift in our country in the last 30 40 years since I was growing up when I grew up uh, and it may still be like this in Wynn I don't know but when I was growing up um, I lived in a na- I lived in some neighborhoods and there was one elementary school and one junior high school in fact the junior high school and the high school were together so there was only two schools and everybody in the community went to those two schools and then when we had baseball, we didn't have it during the year, by the way. Y'all do that, and they start like in February or January now. We didn't do that, we didn't start, I think they had tryouts in April or something, and you played over the summer, and you were in a baseball league, and guess what? All the people on your baseball team were the same people in your elementary school. You were with them 12 months a year, and your baseball coach was the grocer down the street and the guy that worked over here or had a small business and your third grade sunday school teacher was also the fourth grade uh, school teacher there was not this big divide between school community and church everything was pretty well together so one of the things that happened when we came to church we spent time studying the bible because we already knew each other there's been a major sociological shift now and i see it among our young adults guess what they come into your church, and I think I suspect it's here too. They come in our churches in South Louisiana. They don't, they're not in church with their friends. They're walking into a group of new people that they do not know, and they're looking to make connections with people who may have a like mind or build friendships with, and they need time and proximity to build relationships because they're not automatic. Well, you know when that doesn't happen? sunday morning in an hour when you're spending all the time studying the bible so you have to create experiences outside of the church environment where people are spending time in proximity i taught a uh, a class when a church in texas and it was an empty nester class but I, that, that was my focus and, I, and and we named it friends class isn't that pretty cool because i was trying to create friends but here's one of the things I'll tell you the nature. And I was in a Metroplex of Fort Worth uh, and we were in Southwest Fort Worth and we met at eight o'clock on Sunday morning before the other two worship services and Sunday schools. So we met early and so I, and I just did it a lot of times cause I'm on staff. I know people I say, "Hey, come to this class, help me get this thing started. So I just started inviting these empty nesters that I knew were in the church weren't plugged in. Over time, uh, we, we got a pretty little group, pretty good little group. And when I started tracking where they were from, they were literally, 50, they lived 50 miles apart from each other. Some were 25 miles north of the city, and some were 25 miles south of the city. And they, some of them were retired, some of them weren't retired, some of them were still working. They, were in different, they, never saw the, any, they never saw each other any other time except whenever my class met. So we had to start doing some things to help them become friends. I began to see one thing is it took me about two and a half years to develop the depth of relationships where they really begin to care and love on each other. Where if you grow up in a community, you can kind of, I was in another church. Man, I I could get that in about three to six months. I could get that connection going pretty quick because everybody was in the same community. These folks had, they were desperate. They were so far away from each other. And the, illustra- the best illustration, we went to we a social at one guy's house one night. And he literally, his house was 22 miles from the church. You had to go west from the, from the city, south. You might know where that. We had to go over to uh, Benbrook, go south to Whiskey Flats. I don't know where that got that name, but I have a guess. Take a left, go back down 1187 to Mustang Park. And it was a, it was a nice subdivision out there, but it was literally 22 miles from the church. And so I'm, we're having this social, and everybody's there. And we're having a good time. And one of the couple says, man, I didn't know you lived in here. And he said, I live three streets over here. And another one said, oh, I live over on the backside of the suburb." Souther- I had three families that lived in the same community, 22 miles from the church, that didn't know each other. Only time they saw each other when they came to my class on Sunday morning. That's the new America we live in because they don't have time to see each other when they get home they made the time so we had to start so we started doing things like uh, i did bible and biscuits on sunday morning so once a month we did biscuits we got those mary b's right pop those in the convection oven in about 12 minutes they come out they're pretty good and everybody brought their favorite homemade jams or jellies and one of the ladies she became known as the sausage sausage gravy lady so she made the sausage gravy every time and we would just kind of meet in a fellowship hall and do our Bible study there around the table. We started a little bit earlier at 7.30 instead of 8. And we, we had time for people to talk to each other. You've got to make time for people to become friends these days. So time and proximity is critical. I want to move faster so, y'all get, so we can get through this. All right? So if you move across, in our experiences, two other things, two other things happen. Uh, you add serendipity, which is what? Anybody know what serendipity is? those the unexpected events so our experiences they're the the, what makes them so critical is proximity if i'm not near you i'm not going to share that experience when it happens especially unexpectedly so when you're on that mission trip if i didn't sign up for that mission trip i didn't have the same experience that you had right so who got to experience that one only the people that were on that. And then you come home and you're trying to tell and they go like, so that's no big deal. No, y'all on that mission It was life-changing for you, but everybody else missed out on it because they weren't there. We have those experiences every day. The serendipitous thing that happens when we least expect it or unexpected, that moment happens. You don't plan it out. It happens, but it's only people that get to share it are the people who are close to each other and, and physically. Okay? So then, on the other side, so you have serendipity, which are the unexpected, and then down at the bottom, put a word called curriculum. Now, what's curriculum? Is that the quarterly that we use on Sunday morning? Might be. That's one thing. A lot of our so curriculum is really the orderly steps of of introducing it. It it has the word I think has the root has word something to do with order, ordered uh, instruction basically. So there's a, there's a sense of on the side of the, of the uh, content is that we have two kinds of content. You have the serendipitous content, which is the thing that you're not expecting to happen that happens that becomes a teachable moment. Anybody here got kids? So you can say, kids, we're going to sit down and learn this. And they may get it, but the, probably most of what you teach them is serendipitous. You know what I'm talking about? When something happens, you're out, you know, then, you know, they run out in front of the car. That's when you have a teaching moment, right? You didn't plan that. Okay, run out. Let's see how this works. (laughs) Doesn't work, (laughs) right? It's the serendipitous, the unexpected thing that happens uh, that there's a teachable moment. And then there's a curriculum when you say there are some things that have to have order that we add some instruction. Here's how you do this. So the content is, is twofold in that regard. So then education, the way I perceive it is we have an, a, a systematic approach to uh, information that we do over time. That's what I do. Part of my job is the curriculum map for my department. And what we do is we sit down every week, I mean every year, and we have, four, we have program goals for our, for our institution. We have program goals for our degrees. And we say by the time students get out of this degree, they should be able to do A, B, C, D, E. And then we have to make sure that what we put in the curriculum helps move them toward that. Not everything, not only, but it's over. But if they take these classes over a certain amount of time, they should be able to do X. Some of you, have many you got any school teachers in here? All right, this, what do they do for you? At the end of the school, they give them a test. At the end of, by the end of the year, your students should be able to achieve this, right? So we teach certain material over time with, with learning outcomes and with goals over here. So that's a formal education. Now that's a pretty cool picture, isn't it? What does that have to do with discipleship? Let me unpack it just a little bit with some Bible verses if I can. Acts 20, 31. I think there's another slide. This is Paul wrote, Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. What would Paul do when he would go into a new city? He'd go in and just pour himself into that group of people sometime he was there three weeks sometimes he was there three years he was there a different amount but when he jumped in man he was all in he said i'm giving you every minute of my time that i can while i'm here with you so he spent time with them did jesus do the same thing he spent three years i i had a student this week i, I quoted miles monroe and I, miles probably stole it from somebody else but jesus spent 30 years preparing for a three-year ministry most of my students spend three years trying to prepare for a 30-year ministry which one has greater impact the right amount of time okay what about proximity mark 14 32 33 they went to a place called gethsemane and he took peter james and john along with him what do you see here as jesus is going through his ministry he's got people with him all the time they're observing they're watching and he took these three most often. By the way, just a, just a disciple principle. There's a lot of folks love one-on-one discipleship. I don't see it in Jesus' ministry. He had one-on-one exchanges with people, but there were usually two other people watching so they could learn vicariously. So while one-on-one sounds good, most of the time he's doing one-on-three instruction. Okay? Uh, but he'd take these three people along and say, Hey, come with me, and I'm going to go pray all right let's look at serendipity luke 11 1 one day jesus was praying in a certain place and one of his disciples said to him lord teach us to pray did he say come on guys we want to have a prayer retreat he's praying why do you think they wanted to know how to pray they watched him do it and what happened when he did Stuff happened. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Pharisees over here, they're praying, nothing happens. When Jesus prays, stuff happens. Cool stuff. People getting healed. Lame getting healed, walking again, blindness going away, demons coming out. There's all kinds of cool stuff. Which which one do you want to pray? The Pharisee whose whose words go to the ceiling or Jesus who does and the supernatural happens. So that's where they're but what if they weren't near him? what if they weren't in proximity with jesus what if they this and he didn't say this is he didn't plan it he just said and where was it? one jesus, jesus was praying in a certain place so i don't know if he had a certain place when he said hey every time i get to this i'm gonna stop or if he just said hey it's been a pretty rough couple of days i need to go off and have a little prayer time and then he said i'm gonna go off to myself and pray and they said show us how you do that jesus okay and then the next one Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. There are certain things that as we teach that become instructional uh, mandates or doctrines and spiritual practices that are part of our spiritual growth that are important that we discover over time and say, man, these are important for people to know and practices important for people to do. And they become part of our content, not the, just a serendipitous one, but also the, the part of our educational instruction that we do for our people. Okay? So, I think I have a few verses to support that. Okay? well, oh, here's a, I've already answered some of these, but how does, think of for me just a minute, how does time and proximity initiate or strengthen relationships? Can somebody, now that we've talked about it a little bit... <clears throat> Okay, so as you're around other people, you get to know. Yeah, sometimes they say people that live, uh, that are married, live together a long time. My wife and I've been married 42 years. You know, I can start a sentence and she can finish it for me. Y'all you know how that goes. Start thinking alike. Uh, I, I can. I, I, you find these idiosyncrasies with my wife. I like to trick her sometimes. She's a music person, so I'll be sitting in the car driving down the road somebody, and I'll start humming a song and in a minute she starts singing it i just do that for fun to see if i can get her doing something because i'm not a singer but i'll just kind of hum just a little bit of it just to and she's subconscious she don't even know i'm doing it to her and next thing you know she'll break out and sing in this song that i've planted a seed on her so i like doing that all right but how how does time and proximity impact that what about the connection between proximity and serendipity anybody see that yes sir Okay, so w- if you're not around people, you don't know what their needs are, right? So the more time you spend with with people, you're able to identify what their spiritual or physical might need, might mean in order to be able to speak to that, to address that in some way. Good. I think one of the things is you're able to influence them, and they're able to you, and they're able to influence you. you have impact on each life. Okay, so there's a mutual. Uh, Benefit? Usually, it's, well, I say it's a benefit. It may be mutual, ne- mutually negative, right? What is soul saying? Birds of a feather flock together. You are who you hang around. If we're not careful, we and we spend too much time with people who are detrimental to our spiritual growth, can pull us down, can't they? Just as the same way people can elevate us. So there's a there's a mutual exchange of priorities and values. Okay what about that anybody else how what how's your content chosen to disciple people that you may be investing in how do you choose the content so whatever brother mike hands me Absolutely. So as we're investing, as, as other people investing us and, and we're able to share our needs or we're, helping, we're investing and in discipling other people, we need to be listening and having that discernment. And I, one of the things I've discovered, even if you have a systematic curriculum that you're using, like teaching through the Bible or something, you can almost always find something, a truth statement or an application point from the Bible to address where people's needs are and that will advance them along in their spiritual journey. And so we listen for those things and uh, how in curriculum time are related as part of education um, so we, that we we put everything on quarters we go by semesters and that's where your ebb and flow of things um, I'm gonna share uh, I'm gonna share let me share a story one of the things that I, I wish I, I, sometimes I miss being in the local church because I would do this tomorrow if I was most pastors are scared to do this I'll be honest with you I would take Leviticus 23 and build a one-year curriculum out of it. Does anybody know what Leviticus, that's everybody's favorite chapter in the Bible, I know it is. Does anybody know what Leviticus 23 is? Leviticus 23 is the, uh, the, 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 the law that Jesus, gave, when God gave the, uh, the commandments and the uh, Levitical law, it's the feast and the festivals of Israel and he gave some very clear instruction on how to do that and that was supposed to be their curriculum because think about that for just a minute there are these feasts and festivals as they're going through and they have Passover and they had the Feast of Booze and the Unleavened Bread and the, uh, uh, the Feast of First Fruits and, and, uh, and all of that the Pentecost, they have all these, these things many of them were great educational models because they were experiential there was instruction that was tied to it they were relational because they were usually done in families and family groups and communities. It addressed, and there was proximity It got people. And I thought, like, Feast of Booths, I have this. Now, I hope this would be a good model for you to try one day, Mike. Have a Feast of Booths. This is what I love to do in church. Have a Feast of Booths, which is basically the people would come together and they would get in tents and just camp out around the temple. That's what it was, around the tabernacle. Just think what might happen if all your church people brought their tents all the families set up. Y'all got the perfect space for it here. Set up all over the grounds, and one weekend, Friday night, we're going to start and go until Sunday morning. We're just going to have a feast of booze here, and people cook out together and share. and And think about what that could happen as they're going. People telling their faith stories, and they would get together and say, "Remember when God did this? And remember when God did that?" And 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 they would do that as families together all around. And then they would they would celebrate and worship together. So I'm not king of the world, but I would do that. I would do the feast of booths one I'm time. I'm sure you understand it they understand you said booth. Booth. Feast of booze. Not Feast of Booth. <laughs> they would make they would set up tents and, and, and you know, there's uh a difference between those two feasts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there so God gave the gave the the Hebrews a curriculum to follow. But it met those other those other criteria as well. It was it was relational. It was spontaneous. There would be spontaneous things that would happen, and it was uh, experiential uh, learning. All right. So listen, I think I have a couple more Bible verses that kind of support the side. Oh yeah. Now, as I looked at this, this is this is my model that I'm working off. That most discipleship processes fit in some of these and there are two parts to this as instructors as teachers as leaders the one side on the left of, of the model is as you see is the word modeling all right so whenever you're dealing with time and proximity and serendipity what did jesus do you see he had his disciples around him and he said remember what the mandate is follow me and i will make you fishers of men he didn't say follow me and we're going to do three years of seminary and hope you get all this we're going to send you to rabbinical school he didn't do all that he says that follow me and i will make you fishers of men here's one of my frustrations in the church we get new believers and what do we do as a new member class we have a book and we go put him in a room with four other new believers and we have one person try to teach them through that book And when they finish those six or ten lessons, then they're all discipled. That is the furthest thing from real discipleship. One of the things I've discovered is we learn half of everything we know by the time we're five years old. If you think about it, we learn how to walk and talk. We begin to have our values form. We we begin to learn how to interrelate with people. And what do we do in churches? We go put all the new believers in a room over here, and we assume they can read or write. I really have come to understand we can't assume any of that anymore. And what we really need to do is get them in an environment where there's mature believers that are living out their faith so they can be around them and learn how to walk and talk like Jesus. That's the disciple model. Once they start learning the vernacular and learn how to walk and talk a little bit, then we can go let them have a class. But the first thing that's more important is for them to be in an, experience, in, a, in an environment where they're learning from mature believers. That's why those of you that are mature believers, you don't need to have a new members, just a new members class over here for them. You need to be inviting those new believers into your world, boys and girls, where they're seeing you follow Jesus and they're seeing you make that decision about something and how you go through that. Uh, experience how you go through your mom's death and they're walking side by side for you on that i had one of my doctoral students and he had this whole curriculum plan that he was going to do this about building community and discipling through community and and uh, he had his first two small group sessions and then his wife was diagnosed with cancer and then he had to suspend his project and for the next two or three months they were just so engrossed in getting her health situation under control and then he came in and he said dr stone i didn't get to finish this and i had this and and i and and i said what was your goal he said my goal was to really to build community and disciple for those disciple those folks in that context i said well did that happen he goes well yeah and he and what we as we talked through it that group grew more and developed more community and learned more about following christ fully by sharing that experience of going through his wife's cancer with them than they ever would have gotten going through six, eight lessons together. See? And so we gotta model. So those of you who are mature, you need to be looking who is God placed in my world for to model. And then the other side is teaching. There was there was specific things that Jesus did. There were specific times that he taught. And he said, he taught the did the Sermon on the Mount. And even whenever they asked him about prayer, what did he say? y'all know what happens right after that when you pray pray this way our father which art in heaven he gave him instruction gave him a model gave him a guideline on how to pray and so that then it moved from a serendipitous encounter to a curriculum you see what i'm saying and so there are times that we teach there are times that are set aside that we teach and that we that we instruct i'm i'm real uh, intrigued that as the disciple as when jesus uh um uh, as as paul went into the communities he would go first to the uh synagogues and what usually happened to him when he got to the synagogues you may know so they, usually didn't like him. they didn't like him they chased him out when he'd go around one of my favorite stories is acts chapter 18 Paul goes to, to the Corinthian synagogue. He gets chased out. And where does he go to continue his instruction? Not across town, not, the, not to the competing synagogue. He says that he went next door. He went next door to somebody's house. And Crispus, the synagogue leader, gets saved. The very guy who was chasing him out of the temple goes to his house next door and becomes a christian what happens at the temple jesus went he says that he went to as his habit he went the temple the church is often the place that we exchange theological ideas and bible knowledge but i'm going to suggest to you boys and girls not always the spiritual stuff happen here if you read the bible where does the most supernatural experiences happen in the homes in the marketplace on the streets it, it grew out of their experience, but the house of God is often the place of instruction and, corp- and corporate worship. But the real work of God is often happening in people's lives and individuals outside of these walls. Okay? And that's why we have both of those informal things, and then we have the informal things. Uh, Matthew, oh, go back to that slide one time. There's a Matthew, but whoever practices and teaches these Commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are just admonitions about teaching and admonishing and teaching in Colossians 1.28. You, however, must teach what is uh, appropriate. So we see this side is the, the relational and the call over here to model, and this side is the call to teach and instruct. Okay? All right, I think I'm up to my next can you separate modeling and teaching? Mm, it's difficult. You can't. One of, my favorite social, my, one of my favorite learning theorists is Albert Bandura, and he, he has a, a social learning theory is the name of it. And he really suggests that we learn as much by what we see and see rewarded than we do by what we're f- taught. Uh, how many of you would attest to that that have children? Don't do that. What do they do? They do what they see us do, right? And so they're repeating what we value, what we behave, and what we get rewarded. And so um, modeling is critical, and, and our instructions are, but they, they must go together. And Jesus did that. All right, so let's move on into that last section. So how do we do this? So here's what I suggest. There's no one-size-fits-all in this, and for each one of us, we're moving in and out of the, that circle. Sometimes we're in some formal training stuff. Sometimes we're in some serendipitous uh, experiences with other people. Um, if you want to see how to learn, and you might know, need to think about who are some people I need to go hang out with a little bit more. Who are some godly influencers in my life and in this church that I might see if I can spend some time with them? Who are some new believers that are in the life of this church or some immature believers that I might need to invite into my life as I'm walking my journey that I might be able to include them? And this is how the body's supposed to work, and it's it's both formal and informal. So learning happens in formal and informal situations. The content is determined by the needs of the participants. When Paul went in into a city, he says, okay, I'm only going to be here three weeks, so this is what you need to know when I leave. And he, and he laid some of it out. Here's the doctrines that I'm going to try to get to you because I only got three weeks. Uh, Jesus, and we saw the response. He responded to the call for prayer. He was moved by the people and he would address the needs that were there. He would have experiences and out of that experience, he would debrief, he'd send his disciples off and he'd come back and say, guys, tell me what, what, how that happened for you. Let's debrief that and design how we need to address it next time. All right. Um, relationships are critical uh, they're important um, there, is, there really is no discipleship without relationship there is, can be instruction without relationship well I can't, I don't even think that because even Jesus when he spoke to the 5,000 was there a relationship it wasn't a personal one but do you think that those folks sensed that he cared about them so even when you're communicating to a group, a large group, and you may not have the personal touch, because I always get that from students, You've got to have a personal relationship. You've got to be in a small group to teach. I'm like, Jesus had spoke to 5,000 people, but he went in a small group with them. But somehow he communicated, I care about you, and what I'm about to tell you is pretty important for you to know. And it has a lot, it's the words of life. Okay. Uh, group size is important. When you're doing group life, um, uh, the size of a group determines the way you teach uh, the type of teaching and learning and the quality and depth of the relationships uh, I'm scared to do this but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it anyway I'm gonna, this always gets people you know, how, you know how big the average Bible study group is in America anybody want to guess huh 20 okay good guess somebody else 8 to 10 okay somebody else five okay let me tell you what. if i go to a small church which which most of our average size church in Ameri- baptist church in our convention is uh under 100 it's the average church in our convention if you go to one of those the average small group will be about eight people seven to eight if you go to a large church that number will go up to 12 but I can go into almost any church in America and you show me what your average Bible study attendance is on a Sunday and I can tell you how many groups you have within a certain, or I can do the other way. You tell how many groups you have and I'll multiply it times a number. And for your size church, it's probably gonna be about 10. So you can, you can do the numbers. If you have 400 here on Sunday morning, that means you probably have 40 groups that are operating in the life of the church. And so, that, that's been true everywhere. Now, why is that true? Here's the thing, because most of us can only handle about eight meaningful relationships. And the more people in a group, the more interactions there are, the more difficult they begin to be to manage, All right, Don, I'm gonna give you, and Mike, I'm gonna give you a, a, a I won't have time to do it, we can do it on the side. Here's, a, here's the number of group interactions. The number squared, the number of people in a group squared minus itself divided by 2. Okay, that's a little algebra. Let me give an example. Four people in a group squared is how many? 16, 16 minus itself is 12. 12 divided by 2 is 6. six. So you've got four people. There are six interactions going on. What happens if you double that? Let's take 8. 8 squared is 64, 64 minus itself is 56 divided by 2 is? 28. So at, so going from 4 to 8 suddenly you go from 6 to 28 interactions. Add four more people and get to 12. 12 is 144 divided by by itself is 132 divided by 2 is 61. So add four more people and you go from 28 to 61. Now think about 61 voices coming at you at any given time. Can't do it. So the bigger a group gets, the more difficult it becomes to manage. And this is why it's important if we wanna have deep, intentional relationships that are discipling people, we have to keep our groups in a manageable size. So if you're teaching a large group, I'm just gonna give you admonition. I'm not telling you to story of your group. What I'm saying is create subgroups inside your large group so that people can get down to a manageable size of relationships. Okay, so how you do that and organize that otherwise it's only you and the big crowd and then the, recently those relationships will dissipate all right um but here's the last principle in this are you the teacher of the group who's the teacher of the group the holy spirit we are just conduits boy when we get to think it's all about us we're in trouble it's the word of god and the spirit of god and the people of god that are doing this thing together To move people along in their spiritual pilgrimage the word of god the spirit of god the people of god work together it's not about us as teachers we just we're just uh, facilitators all right last one what's your role as a as a disciple leader number one you've got to assess your situation what what is your small group that you're in or leading or want to be part of, or hope to lead one day, you gotta figure out who are the people that I'm trying to reach, who, who's in this, where are they at using those, some of those criteria we looked at earlier. Number two, you gotta create a variety of learning environments. Because, uh, I'll give you an example real quick. Can I go a couple extra minutes? Am I okay? You all okay with me if I give you a couple of minutes? I have four administrative assistants that I work with because I have different administrative hats. And uh, this is a fun thing every day. The one that works in my division, she's an auditory learner. So I can go in and say, Lacey, will you do this? And I give her a list of things and she goes and knocks it out. I got one and another one, her name is Macy. That right there is confusing, Lacey and Macy. That gets me. So Macy's a visual learner. So I can say, Macy, I need you to do these three things and she looks at me like, What are you talking about? Beside being a twenty-four-year-old girl. <laughs> So shes they're all real sweet and they're all real hardworking, but if I can put it on a piece of paper and draw little boxes or something and say, I need you to do this, then this, and then this, and chart it out with a sequence, she goes, oh yeah, I can do that. And then she goes, makes the great little flyers and promotional things, because she's a visual learner. And then I go to my my other uh, young lady that works in our office. And I ask her about stuff, but she's an interpersonal learner. So she likes to talk it out and relationally. And so before we ever get to the list, well, how are you doing today, Dr. Stone? And then, what do you think about this? And then we say, now, what do you need me to do? <laughs> so she wants to, she wants to relate about it before we get to the business. And then I got another one that's, a, she's a, a kinesthetic learner. She wants to say, show me what I need to do, and then I will repeat that. do it once for me, and I will watch you, then I will do it. So she's kind of new, so I'm still learning her. So what I have to do as a leader in that situation, I got to think, okay, who am I talking to this time? Who am I trying to communicate with in this environment? So I'll say, okay, I, this is the one. I need to do this so that she gives it. We're doing that with our folks. They're in our classes. They're in our groups. They're in our circles. And some do better with experiences, and some do better with a lecture, and some do better with show me, and some say be with me, and some say let's talk it out, and everybody's different. But if you're not with them and don't ever ask your people and watch and observe them, you will not know that as a disciple leader. And I think that's why, Pete, why Jesus sometimes said, okay, Peter, come over here and you do it this way. John, you do it this way. James, you know, uh, Thomas, he's a show-me guy, right? He's a show-me guy. So he's relating to his disciples all in different ways. Uh, we got to model and teach. I think we've hit that. You want to refine the process and measure the product. Can I share one thing with you? I have this right here. This is an 8-inch pipe wrench. And I keep this because it reminds me I had a real job before i went back into ministry i was in church work and then i went and got a real job i worked at a chemical plant in lake charles and so i carried this as my pool in my back pocket all the time and we made uh the last we made all kinds of stuff but the last thing we made was alcohol Uh, the unit we would had six units that go around every station was developing the process and the final outcome was alcohol from c2s to c36s or whatever i don't know what they were But we had to take samples all along the way and see if it was at the right level. And then we have to adjust controls and pressures and temperatures and all that kind of stuff all the way through the process. Because if the process was right, we would get the right product at the end. And what I've discovered is sometimes we wanna measure the product without making sure we're doing the process right. We expect, let me tell you what product you get. It's the one you're doing it's the process you're applying so if you're not happy with the disciples that you have you didn't you need to adjust your process so we don't but we don't necessarily uh, uh, just be critical of the product what we do is we have to uh, measure the product all along that process we were taking those different temperatures and samples and seeing if it was on track we hate to devaluate in the church We hate evaluations. We hate taking tests and doing, but we need some evaluation made to say, are we moving people along in our process? How are people growing because they've been in our Bible study groups? How are people moving forward because of the experiences that we're providing? How is this serve opportunity helped them becoming more like Christ? And if we don't stop and measure those things as we're going through, we need to stop, take a sample every now and then, and adjust the process. Sometimes that means getting rid of stuff that we've been doing, boys and girls. Some things we like that's pretty cool but it's not helping the process it may be distracting from the process and we need to cut it out and give our folks more time to build meaningful relationships with lost people or something like that all right and then the last one is realize your limitations but rely on God's limitations how many limitations does God have absolutely none (laughs) all right I have plenty of limitations I loved playing football when I was in high school, and, um, and boy, I, I, w- I would have loved to go on and play at the next level, but I was under tall and underweight. <laughs> now I'm still under tall, and I'm almost like playing weight. <laughs> okay? So I have limitations. That's one of my favorite uh, Dirty Harry lines: A man's got to know his limitations, all right? <laughs> you got to know what your limitations are. There's some things I can do and things I can't do. Things I'm good at, things I'm not good at. Spend the most time working on the things I'm good at and when I can move along. Things that are outside of my control, God, you're in charge of that.